Thank you, John. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the aisle, we'd love to collect those and pray for you in the coming week. I was reminded uh, of a pastor this week who wrote a note to himself and kept it on his desk, especially when he came to difficult passages in the Bible. It was written in all caps. You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. So I was reminded of this note as we lollapalooze into Romans 8, 29 through 30, as it speaks of God's foreknowledge and predestination, and from predestination come the doctrine, uh, doctrines of election, reprobation, which is the teaching from Scripture that God, the elect anyway, election, chose the elect believers from the foundation of the world. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines election as an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of unforeseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. J.I. Packer, in his helpful work on a concise theology, before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, and those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This divine choice is an expression of free sovereign grace, for it is unconstrained and unconditional not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. And Packer goes on to say that God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder that in a matter of endless praise that he should choose to save any of us. And doubly so when his choice involves the giving of his son to suffer as sin bearer for the elect. So I'm presenting the doctrine of election as a joyful truth for the believer, not as something to be apologized about. That's certainly not the context in Romans 8. I was reminded of uh, an episode from John Newton's life. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, uh, used to laugh as he told a story of a, a good woman who said in order to express her support for the doctrine of election. She said, ah, sir, the Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else he would not have seen anything in me to love afterwards. Isn't that the truth if you've lived for any period of time in this world? Newton went on to say, I'm sure it is true in my case, and he was a foul-mouthed slave trader who loved his sin to the max. He said, I am sure it is true in my case. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love and grace. So I'm compelled to accept that great biblical doctrine. So we're transitioning this morning slightly from that great promise, that great statement of comfort in Romans 8.28 
that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we follow the Apostle Paul into verses 29 and 30, and it, it is part of a paragraph, as Alex identified earlier, that flows in thought and theme. And in these verses, he establishes why all things work together for, for good for those who love the Lord. That means from start to finish that God is in charge of all things and that he has called us according to his purpose to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Many commentators call uh, verses 19 or 29 and 30 a golden chain of five links. Because as you look at these verses, he mentions, for those whom he foreknew, that's one link. He also predestined, that's another link. Verse 30, he called, and followed by he justified and glorified. God's the subject of all of those verbs. And I mentioned that we would spend a few Sundays on this. And I want to give this church family an opportunity for a deep dive into these subjects that really demand our attention. It's not a sidebar in the Bible, friends. This is not something that we can just put over in the corner and say, let's pretend it's not true. And I think it is a common practice for pastors. They're, they're cooking along in Romans 8, and they're going from verse 1, where there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and all the wonders of the Spirit-filled life, and the great promise of Romans 8, 28, and pogo stick right over 29 and 30. I don't want to deal with that. Well, that's not the way we operate here. So we're going to give it our best shot as we look at these verses. My purpose, and this is important, is not to usher you into um, debates in church history. I'm not going to do that. That's not what's ultimate in my mind or purpose for our gathering. There's a place for that. There's, a, there's an important place for you and I to understand the history of how doctrines formed. But it's not going to be during this time. I'm wanting to make a biblical argument. I'm wanting us to trace through the sufficiency of Scripture and the comprehensive nature of Scripture why we should believe this and what does it mean and why we should believe it. Neither am I going to rely on philosophical arguments as the ultimate determiner of how we should resolve our thinking concerning God's sovereign election, my responsibility, and how he brings all that together. Uh, it won't be a philosophical argument. I'm not wanting you to leave here today or any, any day, any Sunday we gather. Say, well, what was he talking about? I'm wanting you to see a clear bearing and anchor to the text of Scripture and why we need to look at this as an important doctrine. My, so my focus is to deal with this text faithfully and to expand on other texts to, to where you'll see if you're not exposed to this at uh, this teaching at any time in your Christian walk. You say, okay, I see where these things come together. It's not spoken of in an isolated way. It's spoken up of throughout the, the main thoroughfare of Scripture and that God would give us um, understanding and that, the, in fact, the whole reason you are saved and that you have a, a certain future and hope is rooted in this truth. So let's start first with this. And I've allowed extra time for reference, uh, to be able to look at other scripture references. So I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles always. Um, 
And to, to mark some things down in your insert, uh, you would hear a cross-reference. I would urge you to write things down and to study this on your own. And I'm always available to talk if, you, if we need to. So the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things that God has revealed, and there are things that he hasn't revealed. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, this is a classic text. God speaks through Moses, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So spoken in the context of ancient Israel, there are secret things we know not of. But the Bible leads us to believe them in the sense that God has always been. He's eternal from the beginning to the end. And he has planned all things to unfold according to his purpose. So God's not in heaven juggling. He's not in heaven gasping. Uh, that he had a plan before the creation of the world to bring all things together in Christ for his glory. So election is very much a family secret. I'm not advocating it needs to be the, on the front edge of evangelism, but it is a family secret. We read of it prominently in the tender words of the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry, John 17 in particular. We read of it in the letters of the apostles, and it is spoken of in such a way that we should receive it. This doctrine is, is not the front edge of um, evangelism, but it is important. Now, here's an interesting thought. You know, I, I'm entertaining in my mind. Some would say, why are you bringing this up on Sunday morning? It could get, you know, so confusion. I would just remind you that this letter to the Romans was written to the church at Rome, and they were new believers, relatively. So let's get off of this, that somehow this is too heavy. I can understand that it could be presented in such a way, but this is for all people. This is for all of God's people. And so this, in Jesus Christ, we were called before in election. That before the foundation of the world, the scripture teaches that he chose us in him. He set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. And that we were called out in redemption. That in the course of time, through the preaching of the gospel and God's spirit moving in this world, he called us to himself. The emphasis in scripture is not on human determinism. It's on the work of the spirit drawing us to Christ. We were called from our sins in sanctification. Called from this world to live for Christ and his glory. We were called to. Uh, our identification is in Christ, and that is emphasized throughout uh, the New Testament, certainly in this verse, that we would be conformed into the image of his Son. So personal election declares the Lord is my shepherd. He really is. He has chosen me and will never leave me or forsake me. My hope of entering into heaven at last is the fact that a, a Savior is holding me fast. God cares for me so much that he gave me his own son. This is personal. This is not a cold, aloof doctrine written in obscurity. This is written for the family of God, for the believer. He loved me, says Paul, and he gave himself for me. Jesus Christ obeyed the law 
perfectly for me. He paid for sin for me. For me, Jesus took on human flesh. He lived a, a sinless life. He, he suffered unspeakable pain and darkness as a payment for my sin. When tempted to come down off the cross, he stayed on the cross. He bore the curse of God in my stead. He set his heart upon me. Friends, that's good news. But it doesn't end there. After he died as the sin bearer, he rose again from the dead. He's a risen Savior. He's an ascended Savior. He's a Savior who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, who intercedes for us. He is returning. And the rest of the redeemed, God has his people in every land, in every people, in every tribe, in every tongue. It's a beautiful thing when you read Revelation 7 and you see that before the throne of God is a great assembly. It's described not as a stingy, meagerly handful. It's described as a great multitude that God has redeemed and saved and brought to himself. Let's, in, let's get an introduction, secondly. An introduction. So we move on from this, the secret things belong to the Lord. Secondly, an introduction to this golden chain of salvation. Golden chain of salvation. So the reason we're speaking of before creation in eternity past is because that's exactly where the Bible takes us. The first two are concerned with God's eternal counsel or past determinations, foreknowledge and predestination. The last two are concerned with what God has done and is doing or will do for us in that he calls us and he justifies us and then finally, that he will glorify us. So from start to finish, from start to finish, our salvation is due totally to God's grace. From start to finish. And we have every reason to hope that our security in Christ will be held fast, not by our ability to hold it together, but by the fact that God has his hand upon us and is keeping us. These verses introduce us to these great doctrines. Let's look at the first one, foreknowledge. What does that mean? Well, it means to know beforehand, to know intimately beforehand. It's not a forecast. It's a foreknowledge. It speaks of a, an affection, a covenant commitment and affection beforehand. To know intimately beforehand. One reliable lexicon defines it this way, this word in this way. Used of God's eternal counsel, it includes all that he has considered and purposed to do prior to history. In the language of scripture, something foreknown is not simply that, that which God has was aware of prior to a certain point, it's presented as that which God gave prior consent to. Hence, this term is reserved, is reserved for those matters which God favorably, deliberately, and freely chose and ordained. So some have argued that this verb to foreknow means this, that God somehow looked down the corridors of history with his divine binoculars and saw who would believe and who would not believe. But that misses the point. 
The point here is not on human response. The point is on what God has done, namely to set his affection upon a people. It's linked to the Old Testament word to know, yada, which is a reference to God's covenant relationship, the most intimate relationship you could know. It's used to describe Adam's relationship with Eve, that Adam knew Eve in the most intimate way that a man could know a woman. Adam knew Eve. And with, re- with regard to God's foreknowledge, it's, it's emphasizing that personal and covenantal affection. Listen to a couple cross-references. If you want to turn, you can. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah begins his prophecy with God's call on his life. And it says in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, we know that God knows all things. But with regard to this kind of knowledge, this is speaking of his covenantal commitment and love to redeem and to save. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Well, how could that be? Well, it's because he's God and we're not. But this was Jeremiah's calling. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart for my purpose. I appointed you a prophet to the nations before you were born. So the passage is not merely saying that God foresaw. God didn't look down the corridors of history and say, hey, there's Jeremiah. He's, he might be a good prophet. Yeah, I see that he'll respond accordingly. That's a forecast. God doesn't forecast things. He foreknows things. They come to pass. And nobody feels like they've been violated. In Amos 3.2, that's another cross-reference. Amos 3.2 It says, the prophet Amos, what a wonderful prophet he was. He was a fig picker. And he would show up at Bethel. I always picture Amos wearing a cheap polyester suit, showing up to Bethel to preach. He was a fig picker, a tender of figs. But he was a prophet of God. And he thundered one day, you only have I known. God speaking through Amos to Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What does that mean? Well, you know, you just look at God's election. It's all through the Bible. It's all through the Bible. In Amos 3.2, God's knowledge of Israel. He chose Israel. He chose Israel of all the nations of the world, Moab and Edom and Phil- the, the Philistines and so forth, the Egyptians. He chose Israel to be his covenant people. So foreknowledge means that salvation has its origin in the mind and the eternal counsels of God, not in man. It focuses our attention on the distinguishing love of God according to which some persons are elected to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. John Murray, in his commentary, says, even if it were granted that for, to foreknew means foresight and faith, that God saw faith in people, which I don't think that's what it means, It is certainly true that God foresees faith. He foresees all that comes to pass. The question would be simply, where did that faith come from? Which God foresees. Where did it come from? 
And the only biblical answer is that faith which God foresees is the faith which he himself creates within us. We sing that truth, you know. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, or how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. We sing those things, that our faith is even a gift based on the foreknowledge of God. Now, let's move on to predestination. It's a development of, of, of two separate words, pre, meaning beforehand, and destiny or destination to decide beforehand. R.C. Sproul captures the struggle with this word. I can sense the bristling in the ranks even by bringing it up. It introduces so many thoughts. Listen to Sproul as he captures the struggle with this word. Predestination has an ominous ring to it. It's linked to the despairing notion of fatalism and somehow suggests that within its pale we're reduced to meaningless puppets. The word conjures up visions of a diabolical deity who plays hateful games with our lives. We seem to be subject to the whims of his horrible decrees that were fixed and concrete long before we were born. Better that our lives were fixed by the stars, for then at least we could find clues to our destiny in the daily horoscopes. I hope you don't see it in that light. That's certainly not the way it's presented in this text. The word simply means to mark out one's destiny, to determine a person's destiny beforehand, which flies in the face of everything we know culturally. We are so informed by our civics, and our civics often creeps into our theology, and we love to boast that we're a government by the people and for the people. We've never had to be under a sovereign king. And so I think the, the issue for many of us culturally, and it's not just unique to, you know, I think it's a human problem, not just an American problem, is that we want to be in control. But that we'll see in just a little bit that that's not a comfort. That's not hopeful. So foreknowledge means to fix one's love upon or elect. It does not inform us of the destination to which those chosen are appointed. That's what predestination does. And God does this by calling, by justifying, by glorifying those chosen. Martin Lloyd-Jones had an interesting observation on this word predestination in his commentary. And, and the word um, predestination has within it the word horizon. And the horizon is a dividing line marking off and separating what we can see from what we cannot see. So Lloyd-Jones says everything beyond the horizon is in one category and everything within the horizon is in another. So Lloyd-Jones offers that what the word signifies is that God, having foreknown certain people, takes them out of the far-off category and puts them within the circle of his saving purposes. We are called according to his purpose to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Third chain in this golden link, a golden chain of five links called to say that everything works together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose, as verse 28 says. Both phrases are describing the root of that love, which is found in God's purpose in calling and salvation. 
This calling is an effectual calling. And I'll make this point in coming weeks. It's a, it's a call that fulfills its purpose. It's an overcoming, gracious call. It accomplishes God's purpose in salvation. Now, I believe the scripture speaks of a general call, which is what I do every single week from this pulpit, is call men and women, boys and girls, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Sowing the word of God indiscriminately into people's lives. So any thought of election or predestination where you begin to size people up and say, I don't think they're, I, I don't think they're elect or I don't think they're predestined to salvation is, is ruled out of order. We're not called to do that. We're called to make Jesus Christ known by our message and by our lives. But this is speaking, I, I think, of another calling that we find in Scripture. It's an effectual call where it's more than a mere invitation it is God actually, it's a summons of a king. God is calling, and this calling is effective to overcome. The only thing we ever give to God is resistance. So those who are effectually called next are justified. Verse 29, verse 30 rather. We're justified. Now, we spent a lot of time in Romans 5 looking at justification, Romans 4 and 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way anyone is ever justified before God is by faith, and that faith is in Jesus Christ. So what does justification mean? It means that in the courtroom of heaven, I'm declared righteous by the finished work of what Jesus has done for me. By faith. That's how I receive that. It's not by works of righteousness which I do. It's not based upon my devotion to some religious cause. It is based on by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Thomas Schreiner, who's a faithful New Testament scholar, writes, Now if all those who are called are also justified, then calling must be effectual, effective, and must create faith for all those who are called are justified and justified cannot occur without faith. So the foundational reason why all things work for believers good begins to emerge. God's unstoppable purpose in calling believers to salvation cannot be frustrated. And thus he employs all things to bring that plan he had from the beginning in the lives of believers. So there was a time, believer, in your life, in real time, where the message of, gospel, of the gospel and the call of God intersected your life in real time. Whether it's a park bench or a pew bench. Whether it's a trip to the zoo or home alone in the quiet place of your house. The word of God spoke to you. The call of the gospel appealed to you. What was once the most uninteresting and maybe even repulsive message came alive to you. Charles Wesley speaks of that. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in nature's sin and night. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, awoke, the, the, the dungeon flamed with light, and I followed you ever since. And then the final link in this golden chain is glorified. 
and I want to give a lot of time for that in the coming days. Destined for heaven, believer. Glorified, resurrected bodies. Saved to sin no more. Kept in Christ by the power of God and the plan of God. That the, the faith that saves is a persevering faith. Glorified. Now, I mentioned this in our last time, I believe. Why would he write of our future glory in the past tense? It's in the future. You would think he would say, and we will be glorified. But he writes of this in the past tense. What's going on there? I think behind it is, so certain are the plans and promises of God, you can speak of it as already being done. That's our destiny. Now, a little practical processing here that I hope will be helpful. How should I regard that golden chain? How should I regard God's election and God's choice? I find it really interesting in our text that Paul doesn't begin with, look, I need to apologize. I need for you to forgive me for bringing up a few things as I write this letter to you. I know they're uncomfortable and you might not want to hear them. You don't hear any of that. <laughs> he goes from the greatest promise, one of the greatest promises in the, in the Bible, to this golden chain of why that's true. So how is the doctrine of election mentioned in the New Testament? In my appeal to you, and remember, we're not going into 16th century arguments. We're not going into philosophical debates. This is a biblical conversation. And I'm wanting you to answer this question with me. How does the New Testament present the doctrine of election? And I want to give you three reasons, all from the Apostle Paul. One is it's a reason to praise God. It's a reason to praise God. Well, how do we know that? Well, here's a couple side references that I want you to note. I'm going to read them, but you can write them down. The first is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And Paul, in the course of writing the introduction to his letter, of this letter to the Thessalonians, says this, of them... He loved this church. They were good to him. They were diligent, faithful believers. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's thanking God for his elective love in the Thessalonians' lives. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13. I don't know how it could be any more clear than this. Paul writing again, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of, your Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's chosen you. Not in boasting, 
but in humble praise to God. Any view of election that causes one to be puffed up, braggadocious, arrogant, is a contradiction in terms. It should bring us to the dust. But I, I also think it should keep us from attitudes that aren't represented in Scripture, namely an apologetic tone for how this is spoken of. Another way it's presented in the New Testament is it's a source of comfort. What do you mean? Well, I've referenced verse 28 several times. We spent two weeks on it in our preaching. Uh, so a sort of coming right out of this comfort, all things work together for good for those who love God, those called according to his purpose. How could that possibly be true? And the answer he gives is through God's calling, God's foreknowledge, his predestined electing love in our life. And notice how he closes Romans 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes into a whole list of horrible things. Tribulation, trials, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword. And he closes that in verse 39 by saying, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's our hope of that being true? Is that from start to finish, our redemption and our lives are in his hands. Now, here's one, and it's a third one this morning, a third reason we should, or how we should uh, view the doctrine of election. It's a source of thanksgiving. It's a source of comfort. But I want you to notice how Paul mentions this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. It's an encouragement to evangelize. And this would be an important point in my argument is that any view of predestination or election or pre-creation thoughts that somehow excuses someone in their own mind, excuses them from being a witness, living the Christian life, needs to be ruled out of order. Our election is to Jesus Christ. So Paul said this was an encouragement to evangelize. In 2 Timothy 2.10, listen to this text. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. What, what sort of things, Paul? Well, all that he's outlined before. Uh, dangers and tribulations and trials and beatings and sufferings and nakedness and hunger. I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Friends, that fueled his evangelism. I must go to Galatia. I must go to Athens. I must go to Thessalonica. Why? Because God has people in those cities and they need to be redeemed through the preaching of the gospel. I find it interesting in the book of Acts, two key references here. In Acts 13.48, we find Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and um, this is how Luke describes their ministry. And when the Gentiles heard Paul preach, 
When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What an interesting summary of that preaching stop. Luke says, when Paul preached, as many as were appointed, who appointed? They weren't self-appointed. They were God-appointed when the word of God intersected their life. And then also in Acts 18, Paul is in Corinth. He was afraid in Corinth. How do we know that? Because the living, resurrected Christ came to him when he was in Corinth, and he said to him, Paul, in this vision, do not be afraid. Go on preaching, Paul. I have many people in this city. What does that mean? Many people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It fueled evangelism. So all I'm appealing to you for, and for us as a church, is that we would view this doctrine not through the jaded eyes of its critics, but that we would view it the way the New Testament presents it, as a source of praise, as a source of comfort, and, and to fuel on our efforts to obey the Great Commission. Now, election is a call to remain faithful to the gospel, to call men and women to faith. So in concluding this, these messages, I want to take a little time to talk about the burning questions that come from it. Because I know there's a lot of, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, I, I, I hear it. <laughs> and I just, you know, maybe this is your first thought of even entertaining this. I understand. This is the struggle everyone has. John MacArthur uh, has said, I don't think I do a question and answer session anywhere in the country or in the world where someone doesn't ask about the doctrine of election. They can become an unhealthy fixation. I'm certainly not wanting that to be the case. This is through the normal teaching of the book of Romans. And so maybe the first question would be, it's not fair. It's just, it's not fair. And behind that is we're really demanding that God save everyone. Would it be unjust for a kind and merciful man with the resources and the authority to go to 300 prisoners on death row and pick out 100 of them and say, I'm going to rehabilitate you. I'm, come with me and I'm going to make you a new man and I'm going to take care of you in every way. I'm going to give you a new life, a new job, a new home, a new family, new friends, and pull them away from death row. Would it be unjust to the other 200? Not at all. 300 deserve to die. 100 being saved from death is a sign of mercy we deserve to die, friends. I think that's part of the struggle here is we think that we, we deserve it and minimize the effects of sin on the human family. And here's the rub again. Here's the bone in the throat. In our thinking, we feel that, that God owes us this, and he doesn't. When sinners are chosen by God, it is a personal love. It is an intimate love, and no other explanation can account for it and we see it all through the Bible. Track with me on this. God loved Abel. Cain followed the darkness of his heart. God loved Noah. 
Eight were saved, Noah and his family, and a cataclysmic flood. The world sent itself into judgment. God loved Abraham and his family. The rest were left in their unbelief and idolatry. Abraham had two sons. God bypassed Ishmael, who sent himself away. And he chose Isaac. And Isaac had two sons. And Jared did a masterful job in presenting that to us in two sermons this year. But God chose Jacob. Even before they were born. Even before they did anything good or bad. Rebecca's saying, I've got a civil war going on here, Lord. What's happening? You're there are twins. And the old, you have two nations in your womb. And the older will serve the younger. God chose Jacob, and we never would have. And Esau sent himself away. God chose Israel of all the nations of the world. It was his prerogative to do so. And so if we're nourished on liberal fairness doctrines, yeah, this is really going to be a hard thing to work through. Secondly, beware of building false scenarios in your mind that don't exist. Let me give you a couple. At the judgment, someone's saying, you know, I wanted to be saved, but God wouldn't let me. That'll never happen. That God calls sinners in salvation kicking and screaming against their will. That, that's not the, the, the picture presented in Scripture at all. And I would hold up to you Acts 9, write it down. Acts 9, 1 through 15. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He's on that road, friends. Why? He's got paperwork. He's getting ready to kill some Christians in Damascus. And the living, resurrected Christ shows up and knocks him off the horse. He's blind for three days. His reputation is notorious. This is a hateful man bent on murder. And God dispatched Ananias. One commentator called Ananias the lost hero of the early church. <laughs> Ananias, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus. I don't want to go, Lord. He's mean and he kills people. No, you need to go, Ananias. Verse 15. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Paul, track this with me. Paul was not on the Damascus road saying, you know, I've been spiritually violated. God so has run roughshod over my will. I feel violated around here. Yeah, I got salvation, but I feel violated that I didn't exercise my will. If Paul would have exercised his will, he would have been in Damascus persecuting believers. But he was a new man on that Damascus road. And the rest is history. In our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, it says, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It's consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end, meaning that all the means of grace that God has given to the church we need to be doing. It's, election is never meant or, uh, to be used as a, an excuse for disobedience. And often we hear this in conversations like this regarding prayer. Well, if this is true, what's the use in praying? How about because God commanded us to pray and not lose heart? 
So whatever you're believing about prayer, it's not in conflict with what we've just seen in verses 29 and 30. You're assuming, don't assume something the Bible says is not true. That because God is sovereign in the ways that we've just outlined, that somehow prayer is meaningless. That's not a biblical argument. And evangelism, what's the point in evangelizing if God's made a choice before the foundation of the world? Because the way that's accomplished is through the obedience of his people in real time. What about missions? What's the sense in sending missionaries? How about because God's commanded us to do so? It's the means that God uses to gather his chosen ones. The greatest missionaries in the church believed what I just outlined for you the last 45 minutes. Not all. But I would say, well, let me give you a list. We're not counting noses, but... William Carey, Adoniram Judson, pastors and theologians like John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, Roger Williams, Andrew Fuller, Luther Rice, John, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If you want to go contemporary leaders, Dr. R. Albert Moeller, who was here in June. John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg, Mark Dever, just to name a few. I would want you to know I have a lot of pastoral friends who disagree with me on this. And I want you to know this is not, while I think it's a vital and critical doctrine, it is not what guides your pastor's fellowship with other believers. It's not. I have friends who disagree with me. What's our common bond? How can we do work together? Well, here it is. We believe together and the well-meant offer of the gospel. That every man and woman, every person on this planet needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. My view of foreknowledge, predestination, election does not lessen the need for every person on the planet to hear that good news. Here's something else I would want you to say or think or believe or know. Don't ever think that because there's an election, you cannot be saved. <laughs> I would argue the opposite is true. Because there is election, there's hope for you. Because God can say to any sinner in real time, on October 22nd, 2023, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. It is through the well-meant offer of the gospel that God fulfills his purpose. Charles Spurgeon said, you know, you may disagree with the word predestination or election, but you'll never be able to erase it from your Bible. So how do you end a message like this? It's useless? <laughs> no, it's very much filled with hope. I think a way to end a message on this from Romans 8, 29 and 30 is with the Roman road, which is often used in personal evangelism. Romans 3.23, all of us, the whole kit and caboodle of us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We share that in common. 
We don't have to be taught to be sinners. We begin living in this world and that's our nature. Those are our choices. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, just like with Adam, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You'll never be able to deserve it. We receive it by faith. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners and rebels and lawbreakers, Christ died for us. He died for us. So how do I receive this gift? And how does his death affect my heart? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God's raised him from the dead, I shall be saved. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you want a savior? Do you see yourself in need of a savior? Have you become convinced that you can't save yourself by all your efforts to do good works? Has that brought you to the foot of the cross? His death's for you, receive him. Receive him now. There's an urgency to it. I'm not saying, eh, well, you know, put it off. There's an urgency. Now, today, now is the time. Today's the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And he is here. He's promised to be with us wherever two or three are gathered in his name. Let's bow together in prayer as we close this service this morning. I don't know how this message has um, come to you. Maybe you see yourself in need of a savior. And that is fully possible through the work of God from the beginning to the end. And you're called. You are summoned to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to pray with you, to be a good church home for you. Maybe the Lord has opened your eyes to some other things in your life that have spoken to you directly or indirectly from this text of scripture and to find your comfort in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the full counsel of your word. May we not shrink back from it. It is our hope and stay. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.